pop. Think. Oh. Oh. <laughs> 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 that was good. That was good. I was very surprised by that. I know. Shocked you. I know. Um Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Duji Tahat. I'm Luther Three Bottles of Wine Hughes. <laughs> and I'm Gabrielle Bates. This week we're talking with the incredible Cassandra Lopez. Cassandra Lopez is a Chicana and California Indian writer of Cahuilla, Tongva, and Luiseño descent. She has received support from Canto Mundo, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Hedgebrook Writing Residency. Her chapbook, Where Bullet Breaks, was published by the Sequoia National Research Center, and her debut full-length poetry collection, Brother Bullet, just came out from the University of Arizona Press. She's a founding editor of As Us and teaches English at Northwest Indian College. You can follow her on Twitter at Cassandra M. Lopez. But before we get into that sparkling conversation, we're going to answer a question from our fans. Bold Beaver asks, I just wrote a poem in four minutes. I'm pretty sure it's a genius. Should I submit it to the New Yorker? <laughs> Sis. <laughs> Even God waited seven days. <laughs> At least you can wait a day. Also, like, let it ferment. Like, if it's genius, it'll still be genius in seven days. It'll still be genius in seven years. But submitting it to a place like the New Yorker where you're getting a six-month response time, maybe not as genius to do. I say let it ferment, put it in your bookshelf, put it in your drawer, put it back in your safe folder, come back to the next day. And if it's still genius, it'll still be genius. Well said. Oh my God. So well said. Um, and I, I would advocate for waiting more than one day, actually. I mean, I'm a big fan of calling this the creation afterglow. I don't know if I coined this or not, but there's this time sometimes after we create something where like everything is golden and beautiful and it felt so good to get that written and done. And so we think like, wow, this is amazing. Totally New Yorker material. And you know, a week later, that glow has worn off and we're looking at it a little more closely and clearly. And uh, maybe there's some tightening that can happen. Okay. Radical alternative. Hear me out here, Beaver. <laughs> Send that motherfucker in. As someone who fucking lives in the afterglow. Yeah. Most of the work I send is usually from there. Wow. I same know. day? Well, maybe it's not the same day. Okay. But it's Because like, that's extreme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think... I mean, here's the deal. I have a whole process before it gets into my like submission file. There you go. Yeah. Um, sometimes I will like... That I will expedite that process and it will be like 48 hours. It ends up in my like submission file, submission poems file. In which case it's like open season. I also, though, like, I think I'm a little different so far as, like, I mean, I use the, like, rejection as, like, oh, I need to look at this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I, like, so they have, like, poems that, like, have been rejected a bunch, and I'm, and it forces me to, like, take a look at it. Hmm. It's, like, as, as feedback, as a feedback mechanism. And I think it's particularly, it was particularly more true as I was less surrounded by poetry folks, hmm. right? Like, I needed some sort of feedback mechanism that wasn't just people I knew. 
Yeah, because you didn't have a workshop, maybe. Exactly, exactly. Okay. I'm glad you offered that radical alternative. And I will say that at the end of the day, it's it's your poem, it's your decision. If you feel really strongly that it's ready, then like, who am I to tell you it's not? I just know, personally for me, oftentimes when I send something out really soon after I wrote it, I end up regretting it and withdrawing it. No. I mean, I will say I'm also on this like, I think I was much more that way when I was first submitting poems. And now I have a much more measured, relatively You've <laughs> measured learned. approach. Um, which is right, especially as well, like, if especially I'm at the point where like I'm submitting to poetry for like the third or fourth time. <laughs> it's like, maybe I should make sure that they get the best set of poems, the ones that I have been sitting on and editing and revising. There you go. It can be tough because the thing we just wrote is the thing we're the most excited about. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be really hard to have that patience. I think also depends on your own, like having grasp on your own poetics and your own voice. I feel like I've written poems before that I haven't edited at all. Maybe little, little things, but I was like this is the first. The first draft was the the best draft. Yeah. And so, but that's what takes years of training, mm -hmm. your own eye and your own editorial voice, and so. If you're really new to this, I feel like you're excited about poetry in general, so you're gonna send out work all right. the time. I've yeah. been that person, right? And then, but at some point in the the process of writing and you know apprenticing your own work, you have to learn how to trust your eye and trust your voice. And then you're gonna get to the point where you're like, this draft is the best draft, and so yeah. I'm gonna send it to the New Yorker because it's the best. Yeah. Also knowing that every journal is also subjective, so like they're written by people, and so they may not like that draft, but maybe poetry might, right? And so just again trusting your voice and your own poetic. Your own poetry editor. Yeah. This is on the far other side of the spectrum, but you know, people who have been in poetry for a long time and they've, you know, really figured out their process and then they start to kind of over edit and perfect their poems. Have y'all thought about this at all? Like there's mm -hmm. something really refreshing about a poem that has a little bit of messiness left to it, a little bit of rough edge totally. that I think there comes a time when you, edit too much or are maybe over patient. Um, and so it's all about finding that balance, yeah. right? Between like overcooking the thing and sending it off in the creation afterglow. And to that point, I mean, Gabby, you had a poem published in the New Yorker. Oh, I did. And I, you had like a pretty, you had a similar experience where like the relationship between like what went in and then like your editing, you edit, like, as I understand it, you edited that poem a ton after. Why don't you tell? Yeah, yeah, that. that's really an interesting comparison. So I had submitted a poem to The New Yorker, and then in the six some months I was waiting to hear back, I edited and changed that poem a lot, but not for the better, mm. really, I think, ultimately. And so I was really... Do you think like like you were taking out the mess, some of that Yeah, messiness? I was neatening it up, um, taking out some of the messier bits, and I was so happy. I mean, obviously thrilled that it got accepted, period, but also that that version of the poem got accepted because it was truer to my original impulse for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's that's a good example. Well, I feel like we could talk about this all day, but I'm so excited to get into our conversation with Cassandra. I feel like we should drop this and run over there. Give it up. Hey. For Cassandra Lopez. Welcome. Couple, 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 couple guys not a thing. 
Let's make it up just now. <laughs> so, so speaking of as us, tell us about it. Like why you founded it? What made you found found it? What made you create find it? it? Find it? Want to create it? Um, yeah, just just talk about it. Just seamlessly plug as us. So I um, so actually was co-founded shortly after I finished my MFA. I co-founded it with um, another another poet, and I think it was from the inception was you know we were as writers of color, women of color, we were like are having our own sort of struggle. I think as emerging writers, sort of navigating publishing. So we didn't have a lot, but we could create something, you know. And so creating that space from nothing really. Um, and you know you can do it and so the focus was women of color although we have sort of it, it has been like morphing and evolving and we've done a lot of like special issues um, there is an issue with incarcerated writers there's some issues that focus on youth um, there's an issue that was guest edited and includes, uh, well, the, the theme is um, women of color in academia. My co-founder is, is, you know, kind of has stepped away. And so I'm sort of trying to think about what is it gonna be now? And I and I have gotten like re-inspired because people ask me, I want, when are you gonna open submissions again? Or what are you gonna, so I was like, oh, okay. And so I'm thinking I'm going, we're no longer gonna do print. We're gonna be do online. So we're gonna be publishing less and and I'm also if anyone I'm looking for more guest editors you know to come in and sort of take the reins for an issue as well as other people to sort of work work along because um, I really want it to be more of a community type of type of a magazine rather than just one person because that's not sustainable um, and I'm also okay with at some point sort of saying like that was it was good for what it was at that time and it served what it needs to serve and I I think we created, you know, we were able to publish a lot of people's like first publications and um, they're really proud of it. And, you know, we got to work, do a lot of community building. Uh, but I'm so I'm also fine with at some point, maybe it does. <laughs> it, it can rest. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, you teach at Northwest Indian College. I think you teach English there. Yes. Right. Obviously, given that indigenous writers are so diverse and experiences are spread out across the country as someone who is so steeped in sort of contemporary indigenous poetics. <laughs> like, I'm curious what you can say, what trends you see or what are the markers of indigenous contemporary poetics? <laughs> that is a <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a controversial question actually mm -hmm. to define what yeah. makes something Absolutely. indigenous and I think you're right you're that it's so diverse but I will say that it's a great time to be an indigenous poet indigenous people have been writing poetry and creating and expressing themselves for years since the beginning right since creation if you study literature you might have heard like oh in the you know 60s 70s we had like the native renaissance which mm -hmm. there's a there's a little bit of like well it's not really a native renaissance because indigenous people were writing before then they just weren't writing for a white audience and they weren't other people were not paying attention i, I we talk, i talked to my students and you know we, we talk about that aspect and one of the writers of that time his argument is there is a sort of national um indigenous sort of um, literature that is a creative expression of what, you know, the effects of colonization. It's 
it's in response to that. Like that's what makes native literature. Where there's other people will say, well, there's you know, if a native person writes it, it's <laughs> well, whatever they're writing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or, or there's there's no necessarily defining element. Right. But I think Ortiz is like his 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 definition is sort of like broad enough. You know, you want to be careful to not say, well, you have to write about this, and it has to be about this, and there's limits and form, and because that's why well, it's a great time to be a native writer, indigenous writer, is because there's so much going on with writers writing in their own language, writers writing um, in experimental, writers who are more narrative. You have it all. <laughs> there is a diverse, um, like not only in native nations being represented but in terms of style and form and hopefully the audience will catch on to that <laughs> and 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 i think what happens unfortunately and this happens with other groups is like oh that's the one and and that's who like people only teach or that they only know of or that only gets anthologized when really there's so much more than that i'm so fascinated by that idea of a renaissance in listening mm -hmm. as opposed to creation. And now my mind is just tumbling with like, is that what every renaissance is? Because like the work seems like it's always being created. Mm -hmm. Like there's such a huge variety of work being created. And whenever we put the word renaissance on something, it seems like it's often just like the audience is ready for it or is the critics are ready to talk about it. Perhaps <laughs> the white people are suddenly interested in it. I mean, Let's be clear, you know? Yeah, it's funny that you described as us initially as like a place where you created a space, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, I th and, you know, what it sounds like even in your sort of definition or uh, to the extent that there is a, a characteristic of indigenous poetics, it's pushing back against colonization. And so there is this sort of like internal creating space and an audience question um, that I'm interested in too, like the gaze, right? And where like... I'm really interested in indigenous poetics in so far as like you're speaking to each other, right? Like at what does a community speaking to each other look like? And what is that, you know, if we call that a renaissance, like what does that mean in the context <laughs> of history in this particular case? Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to yeah. say. That was very smart. Yeah. <laughs> this is a comment. Yeah, just, just a comment. Um, I've been thinking a lot about mentorship lately, mm -hmm. and I just love hearing people's experiences with that. And I was curious to know if you feel like there's anyone in your life or multiple people who you consider mentors, um, and if so, what that relationship looks like, how it came to be, or on the flip side, if you feel like you don't have that, um, or if you yourself are a mentor <laughs> and what that looks like. I think, I mean, it's, it's been difficult, I will say. So um, I'm, I'm, since this book has come, come out, I mentioned that I only wrote, I think, two poems <laughs> before I started working, working on this, this book. Um, and, you know, there was like in high school and another one, it was like, there were not good poems. <laughs> And so, but, um, so uh, when my brother passed away, it was halfway through my MFA and I had been studying fiction. And 
and I signed up to take a um, poetry class. I had just like, um, you know, I, this was before it happened. I had already signed up, and my teacher was Dana Levin, who is a great mentor, a great poet, and it was a great fit because she um, writes a lot about grief and sort of mortality and all that, and I think she's also a teacher who um, is like just very real <laughs> and like can break these down, especially for a non-poet coming in and also I think sometimes there's um, this idea about what you should be writing about or like oh you should give it some time you should you should wait a year or whatever to write about these things and I was just like I need to write about it now this is very urgent and so she was I think she's been she was great about um, just letting the poems be whatever they are and I've and you know I, I see her every now and then and you know it's always great to hear her like talk or speak about poetry um, and you know I get so much from that so I would say that she you know even though it was she was sort of she was leaving as uh, you know she was there I think only at UNM for one year but I think it made a big um, impact on on my um, like introduction to the poetry world as sort of a like oh no it's not um this place where everybody is just very like um you know talking all this <laughs> all this stuff and i don't know what's going on and you know it's 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 a real place where you can express yourself um so i would say that and then i think over the years i've sort of like there's been a couple of people i think and then also just having just a good group of friends <laughs> yeah peer mentorship yes. is totally a thing who from my mfa program or from other places that i've met and i feel like have kind of like looked out for me or like i've tried to look out or like um like put people together or just those kind of things and um, i think those are really important too like building a part of a community you know i feel lucky because i was able to go to vona i was able to go to contamundo i've been able to and mocondo i've been able to be a part of some of these different smaller communities within the larger poetry community and that came about at a time where i really needed them mm. so i think building building like from a smaller community outward so when you go somewhere like awp you know people <laughs> you recognize a person and it doesn't just feel so intimidating i think having those relationships are important so we just threw out a lot of acronyms and I'm very conscious of people listening who might not know what all of these things are. So could you just oh so briefly say what Vona is, Canto Mundo? Sure. Maybe even AWP, <laughs> if you feel like tackling that one. So so Vona is Voices of a Nation. Um, I went many years ago, but, you know, and it's been around uh, four writers of color. And, you know, I went for fiction. <laughs> but I still, like, over the years, I've still been able to have this um uh, community and so um, and it's a workshop a yes, conference it's a workshop it's a workshop and then um, Canto Mundo is like Havacanam um, where it started from that sort of idea for Latinx writer poets so it, it only it focuses on poets um, and then Mocondo is um, was started by Sandra Cisneros and it's also a, a workshop in in Texas and so the, the workshop is focused on writers who are like politically minded um, not necessarily culture but it, it, it you know it, it started from Sandra Cisneros so it has like 
that her, her flavor and her touches there. Um, and so, and then AWP, what is it? I always get the acronym. Association of Writers Programs. 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 <laughs> Giant trade conference. Yes. Right. We were kind of talking about this actually right before you walked in about um, like these, what our unique sort of community retreat spaces sort of do for our work. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, like, you know, you, you've got, you've had the opportunity to go to several of them and I'm curious what sort of pushing your work through that particular community and lens like did for like the poems or even this book. So I think, um, I think it's important when you're looking to go to some of these to kind of think about where you are in your process and what do you need? So when I went to Vona, I was half, I was, you know, at, in an MFA program, but you know, most of my work, people in my workshop uh, were not people of color, and I wanted that experience, right? And so, and I want you know, and you know, wanted because I was working on fiction, so that's what I applied for, and that was a good. If and I had a great. Um, a great teacher and I think that experience was like oh I'm learning so much in this like very compressed time um, but other you know other places where there may be are generative or there's um, there are you know agents or that kind of thing or or those kind of things and, and you maybe when you're starting out you don't really you may not take advantage of that because it doesn't make sense for you at that time. Although it may make sense to kind of get educated. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> in yourself. that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but maybe you won't, you're not taking necessarily looking for that. So I think I've been like lucky. I feel like where most of the time I've been to the kinds, kinds of workshops that I needed. And I would say that Canto Mundo and Macondo are workshops that, and, and I think Vono's the same way, give me, that are different than a lot of these bigger ones, and I have been to the big, bigger ones, but I won't even say there's a certain spirituality, but there's a certain essence that comes from it being um, influenced by culture, and, and when I like went to Cantamundo, I felt like, oh, I really need this at my time because of mm -hmm. my own place where I am in the world and struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of like um, challenges that I'm going through. So it's, I feel like when I come away, like when I came away from Mundo, I felt refreshed and I felt spiritually just more energized and like I can do this work. Mm -hmm. Especially since the work that I'm writing on is like, you know, very tackling difficult, difficult subject matter. What Bullet teaches, I learn to speak in metaphor, name your murder bullet, call fear my starless night, red ocean. Without you, I want to knife the writer out of me. I imagine you dead many times before for the good of story, to warm my hands on grief's heart. But on that endless night, I am too human. There is no saving you from rain-slicked men. I constrict, see only blue door, my own cells fighting, neurons at war. Brain turns sloppy. In your brain, bullet, chest, bullet, groan, bullet. On our porch, I reach your body still, flushed with heat. I want to touch your shiver lips, the flutter of your moth mouth to tender that hurt. But fear has found 
my fingers, and your brain cannot speak. Sometimes I only want to remember the rain. So, like, can you talk about the talk about the form of elegy, right? This this book is more or less is an elegy, right? Mm-hmm. So, can you talk about like your your conversation about elegies and how you write an elegy without mythologizing your brother's death um, or death period and what makes it an elegy or is mythologizing what makes something an elegy, right? And so, yeah, just talk about that. Just muse on that for a second for us. Yeah, so I think I come to this a very like organic way. Like, I was writing these before I knew what an elegy was, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It just came out of an impulse, right? Um, but it, so this, this book, a lot of the books, the you is to my brother, right? And I use brother as, you know, because I didn't want to write his name because I wanted to keep some privacy. I wanted to, to keep that because, you know, I've written about it before and it comes um, up where, you know, he didn't ask to be, um, for this to happen. And I'm as an, and, and I have the privilege of being alive. And so I'm writing. And so I'm very conscious of that, the sort of ethics. And so naming him brother or using that is a way to also give me a little bit of freedom. So it's, it is him, but it's not him. He is a character in here. So that kind of adds a little bit of a freedom there. And and I'm very, you know, part of, it, it is a tension because I want, on one hand, you know, on one poem I write, he was the 37th homicide in 2010 in my city. So on one hand, I want his death not to be a statistic. That's really important, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So to bring him to life, right, for the readers. So when people, you you know a lot of time urban violence you know you just see the statistics or you see a clip or a film like a very short and you don't know what's going on with them right and so in a way I do want but he's a human being with complexities like he's not perfect mm-hmm. you know and I and so mm-hmm. I'm very conscious I think I was very conscious also of like okay, like I talk about like, you know, he had pirate, he loved fire. He like set things on fire as a child and then younger. He, you know, like there's things that I write about, like it wasn't perfect. And so I think there was ways I was trying to like bring that in. And also I think I'm writing, I was writing it for his children. So when he passed away, his youngest son was six months and then daughter was six and then his, his first son was eight. And so, I was writing like about our memory and trying especially for the six months old who really didn't ever get to meet him mm-hmm. and so trying to create these memories or these parts that maybe someday he could like imagine this was his father but at the same time you know like you don't you don't want to create this like he's not a god right, <laughs> right? right. he's not a superhero right. you know um, so trying to um, have that you know, show parts of that complexity there. Um, and I, you know, a part of my work, I mean, from writing about this, I really, you know, it, it forces me to think of the ethics mm-hmm. <laughs> of all of this. Yeah. And like, um, I'm writing about, cause I'm not only writing about my own self, like my own grief and my own experience, but I'm like, it's a, so it's a, um, collective, like it's also a collective writing about my parents' pain, his, his, his children and all of that. Um, so that's sort of where, where it starts, yeah. once you start writing outside of yourself, then you could be opening up a 
can of worms. Well, I mean, even the lines, right, I want to knife the writer out of mm-hmm. me, I think speaks so strongly to that ethical sort of conundrum that you've put yourself in, right, in sort of taking on the task of documenting or, like, writing this elegy in a way that does uphold the humanity, (laughs) but also doesn't mythologize in, in like, a gilded, a fake, artificial kind of way. You know, and I would say, like, I... This, if he hadn't passed away, there wouldn't be this book. But and as much as I love this book, I'd rather have my brother back. <laughs> and so th- I think that's what part of it is. Is like I beca- was able, like I became a poet because of this book. Mm. But if mm. more than anything, I would love to be alive. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I, th- I think that kind of that line is coming from. Is like, oh. It, I, I can use this part of myself as a writer, but really I don't want to use that part of myself. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's where that is. I'm so fascinated by the fact that you were on this fiction track and then this incredibly traumatic event happens and poetry feels like the only way to write about it. Is that, mm-hmm. is that true? So were you trying to write prose about it as well or did it feel very no. intuitively like poetry was the place that this grappling needed to happen so i was writing a novel and i was writing a lot of fiction short stories and it like ironically there was also about death it was so i think i've always sort of like in the back and i think coming from you know a a place where there is a lot of urban violence and a place where you're aware you know of uh you know that people are <laughs> are mortal and that anything can happen at any time and so i think that it was sort of always in the back of my mind but it wasn't real to me mm. and so i could imagine it in fiction and and it felt a little bit a little bit away a little bit safer and so when i was trying to write the fiction it was just like there it's like you know writing a persona it wasn't close enough i was like oh fiction doesn't matter even though i don't believe <laughs> but at that time, it was really hard. But, and then poetry is so image-based, and you can go to it immediately, and you can, you know, you can, like, sonically and all the, rhythmically, um, and you, you can get away with not saying things. And I think because... Also, <laughs> I think you just touched on something there. Yeah. Also, because of the complexity, you know, of his murder, it's like, you know, an open... Like, it's, it's not a, a murder... That that's going to be solved. There was things that I also were like touchy and I, I didn't want to enter them, mm. um, you know? And so I think in nonfiction and in, in memoir, you, you kind of expect it. Right. <laughs> you, you, kind you have of, to explain you, stuff. Yeah. Right? You that's need that. And so poetry was just seems the like suited the best for what I needed to do and wanted to do. I mean, now I have like moved on, like also writing because I want to extend this and kind of go deeper. And so now I feel like it's naturally that I'm moving to um, nonfiction, like a memoir. And then eventually I feel like I'll come, <laughs> come, <laughs> come back around to fiction and I'll come and pick up from that like novel that I'm put in the closet or whatever, or like in the drawer or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's so interesting to hear you describe 
sort of your relationship to the poems in this book and sort of making the poems this really intuitive because I think that really comes across I think it enacts a grief so well and I think one to pick on sort of one particular technique I think you you use repetition I think mm-hmm. really well um, in a way that does sort of enact that grief where it sort of orients that word differently sort of each time it pops up and I'm curious with some of those impulses, some of those like technique impulses, do you find yourself like thinking, do you enter writing a poem as like, oh, this is a good phrase or word that I want or image that I'd like to repeat? Or do you sort of write a poem and then let the poem tell you what needs to be repeated? Yeah, there's some, like there's one where, like I'm, I was writing about this woman who crashed into my fair, f- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I was like, what's happening? <laughs> you know, and, and, and that felt like such anger and such that it, like, it felt like there needed to be that repetition there mm-hmm. or where, um, or one where like, there's a lot of repetition where I'm talking about a mother's loss and talking about my mother, but then also talking about like very much in my mind was like the, you know, other mothers that I see in the medium that have to grieve very openly, you know, like Sabrina Fulton and like, and, and that expectation and what would that mean to like have to grieve in the public eye. And so, like all seeing that I felt like the need for that type of repetition mm-hmm. like in that force you know and you know I'm not a mother and I just something that I have to imagine and from seeing my own mother grieve like that seeing her like power but also in her strength but also she's also you know human and, and you know there's so much a woman can, <laughs> can take mm-hmm. you know um and then like um I, there's there's one there's a pantoum so in my mind there was this i'm sorry for your loss because that's something mm-hmm. that gets said a lot right. <laughs> and so yeah. that i knew that i wanted to do a poem where that was a phrase that I repeated and i was like um, I had, and I also like so one of my teachers was Lucy Tapahanzo, who's a Diné poet, a native poet, and she's really was into form, and so she was like, and I don't think she had, or we might have written a p- platoon, but it was mine was not very good. So, but I knew I wanted to go back and like try that form, yeah. or or try a form that there would be some repetition because in my mind I had that, and I I knew I wanted to repeat it, and I knew I wanted to. Um, have I had something to say about that mm-hmm. and then I agree that form is great because when you comes back you can give it a little bit of a different like meaning or tension there so I, I, I sometimes I think it comes out differently but yeah sometimes I think the impulse because of what I want to do or just like oh this is in my brain <laughs> this right. little phrase is in my brain and so sometimes I think I know the actual line that I want to repeat or then I or maybe I just know that I this piece because of the emotion I know that that's that's going to be a part of it mm-hmm. like some kind of rhythm in it yeah we were looking at your book brother bullet and noting uh, a lot of the unique formal moves that you make in the book so we were really interested in your use of subtitles was one of the things we were noting and also this punctuation that's three m dashes in a row mm-hmm. um and so I was 
curious if you wanted to talk about so, uh, those <laughs> Well, the M-dashes, like, date 11 is a real big fan of dashes <laughs> and M-dashes. And I think, and she was so, sh- like, I think some, some maybe some instructors would be like, cut these dead. <laughs> but she was very supportive. So maybe that's, that was her, her influence, right? <laughs> and then I think there's a part, and I think visually I wanted it to I think though I think there's a couple of places where those dashes are there but to to invoke you know some kind of movement mm. right mm. Um, and then with the subtitles I think like some of the subtitles were added in um, later um, because what had happened was um, when when I got reviews back because this went through an like a academic process. So this is posted by the University of Arizona. It's an academic press. And so, um, you know, I'm used to like submitting to some, put it your, pay your money, submit to submittable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they tell you whether right. (laughs) Yes or no. Very simple. (laughs) But, you know, University of Arizona is an academic press. You fill out like if you were like submitting an academic book, like all the information, and then they send it to, if they're interested, they will send it to reviewers. Mm -hmm. And so... My my book had three reviewers, and one of them noticed that I had a lot of place names for the um, New Mexico. You know, like I, I would say, I would indicate where it was Albuquerque or Santa Fe or whatnot. But it was, they were a little bit sometimes hard to track the places in California, and I. That was great to have another reader notice that because in my mind, I knew where I was, but I needed to make it clear to the reader. Also, I think part of it was that there's not a lot of representation of where I'm from in Southern California. And so I think in my head, I was thinking, well, people are not going to know where this place is, so I don't need to add that. So later I went back and add some place names and some of those place names come up in the like subtitles where I'll say, this is San Bernardino Mountains or this is wherever the set is at. That was another way to go in and sort of like help the reader track because this is taking place. It's not a linear, like it's not in linear time. So it's, it's sort of by associate associative time. And so I'm sort of all over the place. I mean, the, and so it was trying to like, trying to help the reader a little bit with those, with those subtitles. Yeah. So before you're talking about a lot about this repetition and that, immediately draws me to the idea of obsession. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book is very obsessive. Or you're like obsessing yes. over, <laughs> right, <laughs> over your brother's death, right? And so I'm curious about how do you write about obsession without falling into fatigue? Like, how do you do these things um, without feeling exhausted or tired? And then once you've done these things, how do you make yourself feel better? Like, how do you go about your self-care process after writing about these hard events and this, this trauma? Yeah, I will probably always be writing in some way about... Um, death and violence um, and you know that's you know that that is you know they say like writers have obsessions and 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 so like how do you do it? and so like with this book this is a book that I one it taught me how to write poetry but it's also a book I, I feel like formally like, concerns like are broader now I think and I think you can see like it toward the end like moving away from not just my brother's death but some of the larger issues but at that time like I really need to go to go into it right and so I was also fortunate enough 
where after my MFA, I had some residencies and I had some time to write and really like a couple of months in like Santa Fe. And so I could focus and I was, I was pretty hard on myself because I was like, oh, I didn't get enough done. But I don't, I don't think you can, like when you're writing about this, like I wrote a significant portion, um, maybe about a third of the book there um, in like a six months time. And I think that was pretty good, but I think at the time it was like, you know, had these high expectations. I'm gonna finish Very relatable. You need to give yourself time when it's like an emotional you can't I mean, I don't write every day. I'm because of the type of work I'm doing and I think that's totally fine. Like there's people who write every day, but that's not me. I need to be able I mean, I every time I write I end up crying. So <laughs> so and I think like um, I, and I need to go there for you know for it to work. And I'm one of those people who's at a coffee shop. There's tears running down my face. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to that point. Do you you know we've sort of grappled with this question sort of individually. I'm curious. Do you write to heal as part of your healing process, or or do you write as a way? to give yourself permission to heal? Like, I'm curious what the relationship between healing and your writing is. Well, I think one thing I will say is like, um, you can't, I think there, it can help heal. And especially from trauma, because, um, one, like the, like people who study trauma and PTSD say that you have to sort of, um, reconstruct what happened before and after and and we were, and then there's all studies about you know uh, you know abuse survivors about holocaust victims like all people who've been to all kinds of a lot of different trauma and you know that's been helpful to read about that and other people who um you know have ptsd and and so understanding how my brain works mm. <laughs> you know understanding that is is an important part of my healing is as being not knowledgeable um and so I would say like also therapy is important as well. For sure. <laughs> like yes, you can write and write I think I write to understand something that I'm I, I want to know more about or I'm confused about or I'm trying to get. And I think some of that does help with the healing, right? And and I said like in, in in the trauma studies in P, you know when they're looking at PTSD you know that is an important part is is being able to reconstruct and write and tell your own story hmm. right and especially for marginalized communities being able to have that voice right versus someone coming in and and also being where I'm from San Bernardino a lot of times there's you know people like there's um, LA Times articles about our community or those from and they're they're like oh look at how terrible everything is right <laughs> and and so being able to say like yes there is that and but here is my story and look like I, I hope that you can like people who read the book says yes it's about grief but like there's like I'm also writing about like joy and like these childhood memories that I have I'm trying to like um reconstruct those you know mm -hmm. there's these moments right and so that all of that is part of that experience and so I think kind of that's important as well um, but yeah I don't <laughs> I couldn't write every day <laughs> that's not me um, but I think it's important I mean and some people I also think it's like I'm glad that I have a way to creatively express myself unfortunately I think there's you know people like in my neighborhood or where I'm from my community who um, um, 
don't have those outlets and may be self-destructive like and and so i hope that maybe if they are not writers but there's other ways to express themselves or that at least talking about it you know talking about it is like a good step instead of um like harming yourself or others are there any texts or books or poems or essays or quotes or anything that you held close as you were writing this book or that have helped you in grappling with this particular type of material? Yeah, so the, I, I'm referring to Judith Herman has, a, it's called Trauma and Recovery. And as I, it's that, she's, that's her, her study. And it is... It's not for your poetry or, or writers, but for me it was helpful because as a person who was had experienced violence and trauma, to be under, understanding that people their reactions are, are different and varied, and these are like also some scientific. This is like the sociological aspect. This this is like history of you know mm-hmm. like all that you know stuff, and then I think putting it in the context of like like the work that I'm doing now is putting in the constant context of colonialization and looking at historical trauma um, and and so that's sort of what my work is now kind of tracing that mm. and asking the question of what lets one brown what allows or enables one brown man to kill another brown man and like if I can't how do I um, heal without forgiving because I'm not in that forgiving place yet (laughs) and so you know and people talk about restorative justice and all and so trying to like see if I'm even I would even be there you know like um and I think for it's for marginalized communities like the justice system doesn't always like um, there, but what if that's the only thing, or what if that's like out of, like that's not even, you're not, you won't even be able to. And and, and so I, I'm sort of like grappling with those sort of questions, mm-hmm. I think that are, is tied to what I wrote in here, but are like springing forth from that. I, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think a lot of the strands of what we've talked about, I think like pop up in that answer there at the end about, you know, taking your own sort of personal experience and refracting that, right? Like extending that across, uh, generations, right? That, 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 uh, single, like what is a single traumatic incident and how does that relate to intergenerational trauma? Mm -hmm. Right. And like the inheritance of that and how do those things sort of play off? And I'm like, it's really actually very fascinating to hear you talk about it in the context of healing in particular, right? Like, how do you how do you take care of the personal healing, or how can you conceive of even the larger healing if yeah. you're still sort of stuck <laughs> at the personal one? You know. Peeled fruit. This is a sibling story. First son, a clone, grafted from your wide acorn face. It's easy to mistake his face for yours, brother. I hand him first segment of orange, then split another piece for daughter, carefully peeling away, membrane for second son. He is a good eater. 
out of diapers now and knows your name. Even if you can't remember how your burly chest housed a soft rumble of praise. Brother, I want to tell you, I am learning to speak in two languages, one on the page and one off. Like you, I now have secrets. Brother, did you ever see mother cry? My first time is at hospital. She is a fierce and bitter howl curling into a rounded fist. I want, I try to dream of you. Instead, a cold snap comes. Winter's bite we have been warned about, but pushed away into the folds of pillow. Now we must search for the ripe, slick liquid hidden in our oranges. Father knifes their skin in a spiral. This is how I feel sometimes, like skinless, ripe fruit, so heavy. Other days I blossom white petals reaching out into a green-leaved tree. Thank you to Cassandra for chatting and drinking champagne with us. Thank you to you, our sexy listeners, for loving us and sending us sweet nothings via Twitter. We love you. We do. Love. If you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and rate us five stars. Five loving stars. Five sweet nothing stars. No. Which helps other people find poetry podcasts like us. Lastly, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us on your questions, your thoughts, your best wine, your okay cheese, and chips. I really love chips. And all that to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Later. This gonna show you these hands Gonna take on these streets Gonna show you who's man's Cause my crew mob steady Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and the...